Well, this morning, uh, I want you to do me a favor and listen to the Word of God, and I'm going to read a portion of Scripture before I launch into my message today. And uh, I'm also going to ask for a couple of volunteers. I need two volunteers. Uh, You have a loud voice? Heck yeah. She said, are you kidding me? That's That's what she said. I heard you. Would you read something for me at the right time? You've got to stand up and read it loudly so everybody can hear you. Matthew 21, verses... Don't, nobody else look. No looking. No looking. Matthew 21, 28 through 31, if you'd be so kind. Did I see Dylan back there? Can you read real loud? Yeah? You promise? Okay. Here's your verse. Ready to write it down? Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Okay? Everybody got it? Let me make sure you got the right one. Don't want any mistakes here, because if, if there's a mistake, I, I, there'll be a mistake. That's what will happen. Matthew 21, 28 through 31. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Okay? So... It's not the same as it used to be. You know, we used to carry Bibles with us. And remember, Anybody remember Bible? T- what was it? Sword drills. Sword drills. Anybody remember sword drills? We do it in Iwana. Okay. And you should. So everybody had to look it up, right? That's back when we knew our way around the Bible. All right. If you would be so kind, if you want to follow along, you can uh, look in your Bible that's in the pew in front of you, page 1141, 1141, 1141 is the page exactly where this text is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31, and this morning I won't make you stand up. Don't push it, huh? You need to stand Oh, someone's standing up already. All right, don't, you don't have to if you're uh, indisposed in any way, but why don't we stand for the reading of the Word of God? You guys talked me out of letting you sit, so don't complain to me. Ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. For the word of the cross, this is a great Christmas text. Little joke there, but it is. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, and all of God's people said. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, not through human knowledge, we're not going to make our way to God. That's what he's saying. God was well pleased through foolishness, the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For I consider, I consider your calling for... No, right, that's not I. That's a number one. It got transferred in my notes. That's all messed up. All right. For... 
Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Thank you so much. Let's pray for a minute. God, thank you for the gathering of your saints, the fact that we can do this today freely. Whenever I think of that, I acknowledge that it could be a matter of days before we don't have that kind of freedom. As some of us went down to the sheriff's department this last week to enforce shooter safety, we could be at risk just for being stupid enough to gather out of the world to worship God because it's the wrong one to some people. Lord, I'll put myself at risk for that. Get glory to yourself. Those who are hungry for you, feed them today. Those who are stiff-arming you, get their attention. We lean upon you, Lord. We lean in to hear from you your way of doing things. Scandalous grace. That's what this is talking about, scandalous grace, and we don't fully grasp it. Would you help us today, we pray, in the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, my title today is, I hit it twice, I hope I'm not in trouble already. Ba-boom! Boy, I feel power all of a sudden. Scandalous grace, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I almost uh, real, I realized I should have titled my sermon today, Where in the World is Matt Lauer? Hmm. I mean, am I, it's not wrong. It's all over the news today, is it not? I mean, every, they're falling like flies <laughs> or dropping like flies or whatever you want to say. Uh, reminds me of a uh, Gary Larson cartoon, has a fly reading the newspaper, he's reading the obituaries, and he's saying, we're falling like ourselves. <laughs> the reason I, I mention that is because we started reading the Bible together, right? The Daily Bible, and, and, uh, and I want to say, Pastor Mike blessed you for reading the Bible today. I just elevated you, Pastor Mike, wherever you want. There you are. I'm going to double your salary, which is nothing. So there you go. Um, While we started and we started working our way through the scripture, I got this wonderful question. And it went like this. Is it just me or does anyone else have a problem with Solomon's lineage? I'm still hung up on his mother being Bathsheba. Listen to all the yes. Yes. Why? I mean, think about it. What, is it. what a scandalous story, is it not? A scandalous story. I mean, David, since he's the prime mover, I've often wondered about Bathsheba. 
Are you too scared in the presence of God to say no? I mean, in the presence of a king who can take your life just like that to say no? Is that part of the drama? Was there actual attraction? Was it fully will? I don't know. We weren't there. We don't totally know, but it's certainly scandalous. And then somehow God moves in on that and turns it around. Let me, this was an email question. I said, oh, it's such a good question. I'm not going to say who, who sent it in unless they want to volunteer right now. But great question. I think I will fold it into my upcoming grace series, which is what I'm doing right now. So I'm a man of my word, at least once in a while. For now, here's a sample the Old Testament in the Old Testament of the grace of God at work despite our blunders. We think grace is only in the New Testament. You couldn't be more wrong. If you've been reading the Daily Bible and you've read through the Old Testament, so who is I just heard somebody praying this in the last seemed like the last 24 hours. The fact that we continue as his people is abundant grace all the time. Because he should just go, I think I've had enough. <laughs> right? I think of how many times I've been stuck in my own bondage sins, and you have them too. Yours are just different than mine, most of you. Some of you have the same ones I do. And I committed once, and I committed twice, and I say I'm sorry, and I committed again. And I think, at what point? Wouldn't it be right for God to just say, you know what? Enough. Come home. I don't know if I'd go out that way, but it works for me. But here's what I wrote in my email. God uses the sinful desire the Israelites had for a king. Remember, it was displeasing to God for them to want a king instead of him being their king. Anybody remember that? Samuel, one of my, probably is my favorite prophet. I mean, he's like, I'm so disgusted. And God says, cool your jets. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And even though that was a wrong thing, he uses a king to bring the Messiah into the world. Yes? See, he knows what he's doing. We don't think so, but he does know what he's doing. Right? When he's working the angles on your life, that's when you're pretty sure he doesn't know what he's doing. Come on. Joseph's brothers save themselves by trying to kill their brother. Figure that one out. Oh, I can just think of all the thoughts going on in people's minds right now. I could get rid of him and God will rescue me by it. No. Wrong. I don't want you to take away the wrong lessons here, okay? But Joseph's brothers sin against their bro Joseph's brothers sin against him. They sell him. Thank God one of them had enough conscience to say, please don't kill the kid. Let's sell him into slavery. Remember? I mean, this is how sanctified the forefathers were. Thank you, Lord. You know? And one of them at least rescued him. They, he gets sold into slavery, and later they are all rescued because he becomes right-hand man to Pharaoh. So, I know a lot of this is for those of you who have been reading the Old Testament with us, and um, you've come quite a ways now. You're up to Elijah, Elisha, I think now, right? Um, but great illustrations of grace. Even though it's debatable, I think it's there for a reason. In the accounts of the forefathers of Jesus himself, there was a woman who was a harlot named Rahab, 
who was in Jericho, who's converted by the sheer awesomeness of the God of the Israelites. She comes to faith, and somehow she's folded into the family line. I mean, it's scandalous. This is upside down, is it not? Yeah, it really is. So I'm going to, make, I'm going to give you the short answer, and then I'll come back to it, okay? You're not supposed to preach that way today, I know. I'm really too old to be doing this anymore, but you just have to live with me, okay? David and Bathsheba, after deep repentance, and that's what we always miss. That's what we miss. After deep, soul-searching, agonizing repentance, David, against thee, thee only have I sinned. He doesn't mean he didn't sin against Uriah, her husband. He did. He knows that. But the biggest thing is I offended the living God. And he's in agony. The bones that you've broken, please heal them. A broken and contrite spirit, O God, thou will not despise. That's where the purification took place. And I don't know whether Bathsheba even really knew Yahweh until she experienced his repentance. Maybe that was the the day of dawning for her. What planet have I been on? You know that you could be a child of the children of Israel and not be a child of God. Did you know that? Paul made that very clear. So after deep repentance, they are used to set the model of the future Messiah on the throne. None of this, and please don't miss my lesson, none of this means God's approves or likes our evil, but only that he can redeem the results. He can trade beauty for ashes, right? The only time you really get it and are blessed by it is when you understand you're sitting in ashes. (laughs) When you think you're pretty okay, that's when you're going to stay right there. And that's my whole point today, as a matter of fact. So what we're looking at, and if, you have a, if you're a note taker and you want to fill in things, uh, I want to share a few insights with you out of this great text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Ready? I'm pretty sure I'm pressing the right button. Pastor Mike left. He didn't want to see this. That's what he just <laughs> I'm kidding. So, the Hesed, the loving kindness of God extended to David. All right? Um, there's a picture of grace at work in the Old Testament. We've just mentioned a bunch of them. And even when we look at Christmas, here it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here, right? We look at Christmas. Christmas itself is scandalous grace. Somebody in our prayer time reminded me that in the past I've mentioned this is not unique to me. Others have said it, that the coming of this precious little baby Jesus in the manger was an act of war. God moving in on a broken humanity to rescue us from the devil's snare and from our own sin, our own evil. It's an act of war, declaration of war. And the way Jesus comes into the world is absolutely stupid. The, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah, the one who's going to set everything right. We're going to finally give the Romans a good smack in the face, you know. We're going to take our country back. I better watch that. I don't want to get off on that. But anyway, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to kill, you know, fix them. And he gets born in a stable. And you know what stables smell like? 
I mean, it's totally inappropriate. It's absolutely scandalous. No prophet came out of Nazareth. You're crazy. Can't be true. He's not a yeshiva student. He's not a formal rabbi. He hasn't studied with our seminary. Who is this guy? Why are you following him? He breaks all kinds of rules. He's a troublemaker, yada, yada, yada. He hangs out with publicans and sinners. And for those who don't know publicans, that's tax gatherers. We understand that. Doesn't that relate today? Anyway, sorry. Anyway, that translates, right? So, understanding that God is in the business of upending, upending our expectations. Grace means that God supplies us with undeserved favors. Undeserved. That's why Bathsheba, she doesn't deserve it. That's not even the issue. The issue is, do I understand grace? Do I understand that God sees the heart and he knows what has been made right? And I don't even know if it's primarily on her or primarily God's promise of loving kindness to David that he would not renege on. Whatever it is, it's grace. We don't always like it because he gives it to the wrong people. Am I right? Religious expectations. The first thing, we've got three upendings today. We're upending religious expectations. First one, religious expectations. And here's what the scripture tells us from what we just read. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom could not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews asked for signs. Greeks searched for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a second before we read the next text. The foolishness of the message preached. Interesting words. Foolishness is the word moros from which we get moron, moronic. Right? Absolute stupid. In fact, it's not only foolishness. The, the word madness might be a better translation. When a person is doing something that you say, that's madness. What are you doing? It's totally stupid. Stop doing it. Stupid with a double O, you know? Some of us are awake. Okay. And, but it's not because I have the intellect of Stephen Hawking that's going to rescue me. We can get so far with intellect and so far with knowledge, and there's good things. And by the way, don't ever... This is where Christians get goofy sometimes we say oh god is anti-intellectual that's not true paul was a brilliant intellect god used him powerfully so has there been others down through the history of the church don't go to the wrong conclusion the point is that is not what rescues us it's the simple good news of the gospel but jews ask for signs greeks search for wisdom the thing that was popular at the day and why it's in the book of corinthians the corinthians were enamored with all the orators and the platos and those kind of people and so if you're not coming across that way you're just not in if you're hebrew in background you want to see signs and wonders you know, when God rescued his people the first time, what happened? Moses is, a, is the biggest figure before the coming of the Messiah, right? What did he do? He parted the waters and they walked through on dry land. And then when the bad guys chased them, what happened? You all watch the movie. You know what happened. The water. <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille did a great job killing all those Egyptians. You know what I mean? That Well, where is it? 
What do you mean he's born in a stable? What? Somebody's got their signals crossed here. They look for signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. But I haven't even gotten to the main point yet. Here it comes. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. You know what that word is in the Greek? A scandal on. I'm not talking about a TV show about Washington politics. Scandal. A scandal. To the Jews, a scandal, a stumbling block. That's what the Greek word means. I'll unpack it in a minute. And to Gentiles, moronic, madness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> Let me read a couple of things to you. Gordon Fee, probably one of the, I think, in my opinion, one of the best contemporary expositors of 1 Corinthians. He's a, a charismatic scholar. Wonderful. Just brilliant. He uh, unpacks the word, the Greek word translated stumbling block, scandalon, from which we use our word scandal. Scandal is, in fact, closer to the sense than stumbling block, since the word does not so much mean something that one is tripped up by as something that offends to the point of arousing opposition. No, if that's the way, forget you. That's what the scandal of the cross is. If that's how it's got to be, no way, because I know better than God. And isn't that exactly our problem? One of the comments he makes is that we have wrong expectations because we want to make sense of it from our point of view rather than from God's point of view. Ma'am, it's not time for your verse. Stumbling block text? Yes, it's the same word. Yes, yes. And part of that is the, the, the original meaning of the word. I wasn't going to bore you all with this stuff, but you're interested, so I'm filling you in. You know how when you like want to trap an animal and you put the box up on a stick and you put food on it and the animal grabs the food, it pulls the stick out, and he's caught. That word, that trip stick, is the word scandal on. That's where it comes from. There, we learned something, right? So that's where it comes from, a stumbling block or something that will trap you. So I trip, and so it's used as a stone of offense later. You know, Jesus becomes a stone of offense to the Jews. They trip over the gospel, if you will, and they get hurt. They hurt themselves because there's a resistance that comes out of that. You're trying to trip me up. You're trying to trap me. I'm against this. I'm mad. I'm pushing back. So he points out the idea that it's something that has offense to the point of arousing opposition. It is hard for those in the Christianized West. I brought something from my aunt's estate. She has a Roman Catholic background, and Baptists have a hard time with this. Why do we have a hard time with this? Yeah, but didn't he die? Yeah, well, how do you show him risen on a cross? Well, there you go. That's why we have a problem with it. But it's not wrong to visualize Jesus on the cross. This is the scandal. See, I can even scandalize Baptists this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. By the way, can I just say something when I do that? 
people think I'm, I'm not making fun at all. Martin Luther said it's a good idea for Christians to remind themselves that they're under the authority of the cross of Christ. It's hard for those in Christianized West where the cross for almost 19 centuries has been the primary symbol of the faith to appreciate how utterly mad the message of God who got himself crucified by his enemies must have seemed to the first century Greek or Roman. But it is precisely the depth of this scandal and folly that we must appreciate it if we're going to understand why both the Corinthians were moving away from it, why Jews resisted it, etc. It was well over a century, get this, it took a hundred years before the cross appears among Christians as a symbol of their faith. It's a repulsive thing in that generation. To the Jews... Deuteronomy says, curses is everyone that's hung on a tree. So it shows that God hates whoever that person was. Do you get it? So they're going, yeah, you're right. God hates the sin that you committed that he put on that person on the cross. They got half of it right. But it's scandalous. And to the Greek, only the worst criminals, insurrectionists, people that you have to make an example of how horrible they are. Only those people are put on a cross. Boy, is God just really needs some counsel from us, doesn't he? Because this is not the way to win the world, is it? To say this terrible, offensive thing, not unlike symbols in our culture today, a noose, it has, it has emotional impact, doesn't it? The Nazi swastika, they have emotional impact. That's what the cross was like in the first century. Are you hearing me? Oh, we went around with our little crosses. Back then they would go, what are you, a wingnut? What's wrong with you? So, sign of deliverance. <laughs> now, for us as children of God, we know that we are rescued through this wonderful cross. God is in the business of upending our religious expectations. Okay? He uses a scandal to do it. It's folly. It's madness because we have the wrong expectations. I've, I know none of you struggle with any of this, but I do. And I remember, and I've shared this one other time. Uh, here I am. I'm a pastor. I've walked. I'm, I'm going back now about 12 years in my history. I have probably counseled over a thousand people, seen people walk through to some freedom in their lives, stuff like that. By the way, I'm not, this is not like keeping score bragging. I'm trying to make a point here. So I'm the pastor. I'm the one with the answers. And my friend Gary, who's been here, invites me and my leadership team to fly to San Diego and go to a Living Waters training where a group of redeemed, struggling, sexually confused people who've come out of homosexuality, the LGBT community, who are pressing in to worship God and want that healing work of the Spirit in their lives. I'm worshiping with these people, and I'm having a more intensive time of worship with them than I do at my own church. Because the presence of God is there, and they're hungry for him, and God can't resist that. And so I go to several sessions, and one of my friends really wanted me to get my truck together, so they're encouraging me. You know. I'm like, 
don't try to play the Holy Spirit here, buddy. And I go to this session where this dear sister, rescued out of lesbianism, is teaching about the fathering Jewish father in his home and how he blesses his children, which is something I missed in my life. And the Holy Spirit goes, bam, and just knocks me down. And I'm bawling. That's totally wrong. She has no business straightening me out. How many people do you immediately in your head shut out? Because God can't talk through them to you. You've arrived, haven't you? God is in the business of turning over, upending our expectations. That moves me on to another concept. Let me read something to you. In the early church, the, publicly, the Christians were amazingly admired as well as hated at the same time. Did you all know that? Both. Can't have a, you, know, you, you can't have a nice calm middle like we've got today. That makes me wonder what are we missing a lot. But anyway... They were hated and persecuted, and they were admired. In fact, let me, can I quote something a friend of mine told me? This is, this is my ADD kicking in, but I'll stay on task. My friend quoted one of the ancient uh, writers. It was a, a Roman writer who said their admiration for the Christians went like this. They share everything, everything that they have. They share everything that they have except their beds. American Christianity's got it exactly backwards. We don't know where the boundaries is with our beds, but we keep all our stuff. That was a little prophetic utterance for you, but it's sad. One of the, one of the writers in, the, in those days named Celsus, who was an attacker of Christianity, constantly raging about it, said this, Their injunctions, the Christian's injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. Because of what we just read, right? That's what they would interpret it as, you know, the wisdom of this world. See what I mean? So he's interpreting with this mocking tone. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. That was his attitude. Quote, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, stupid, and only slaves. I'm just telling you what's in here. Don't take this personally. Only slaves, women, and children. You think their thinking was a little wrong back then? Totally wrong. You see the perspective? the opposition to the simplicity of the gospel that anyone, anyone can come to know Christ. The truly unique feature of early Christianity was its non-homogenous character, that it cut across all sociological lines and accepted as brothers, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female. Contrary to the propaganda of our modern generation, Christianity exalted male and female. Boy, we just read history. (sighs) Ask me how I feel about that. Strongly. So my next one is 
He's upending human bias. Human bias. In fact, I want to read something famous, uh, slightly liberal, but amazingly brilliant on historical information. William Barclay, letter to the Corinthians, made uh, this one particular statement about this. Let me just get the right one. Here it is. It was the glory of Christianity that it made people who were things into real men and women. You know, back then, if slavery existed, still does in the world, tragically. Uh, It's one of the reasons I've jumped in on the IJM movement to try to move against all of that. It was the glory of Christianity that it made people who were things into real men and women, nay more, into sons and daughters of God. It gave those who had no respect their self-respect. It gave those who had no life, life eternal. It told men that even if they did not matter to men, they still mattered intensely to God. How complicated is that? It told men who in the eyes of the world were worthless that in the eyes of God they were worth the death of God's only son. Christianity was and still is literally the most uplifting thing in the whole universe. I thought that was well said. I was at a training time for my karate, uh, educational karate for kids, especially learning, teaching them how to uh, be safe in a more and more unsafe world. And uh, one of the administrators mentioned our master's, our sensei's words when he was speaking to a kid, the kid, the, a little child who was like, well, why should I learn this and why should, I, why should I care about this? And it was so simple and profound. Because your life matters. This man who would not ad- adhere to the gospel gets that your life matters. Matters. Are you in the room today? Anybody not in the room today? I want to see you. Your life matters to God. And if your life matters, so does the other people around you. So it says in the scripture here, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You want to know the the Greek word for the noble there? Eugenics. Anybody know what that is? You know? Yeah. Not a good word. It comes from noble being of top rank. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. The weak, the feeble, the helpless, in terms of power. Think of the people who have no power. We've got some in our church, you know. I've got people occasionally up against somebody's unjust lawsuit, and it's like absolutely unfounded. But if you don't have wealth, you're just stuck. It's unjust. God has chosen those people, even though we ignore them, many times to glorify himself. You know what's been recent? What was it? 50, how many years has it been since Titanic, the movie came? It was 25? I think it's 25 years because they just did it. You know, they're, you know how they loop all these movies on TV. You know, anyway, and uh, so Titanic was on TV. No, Pastor John isn't recommending that you watch Titanic. Tragic, right? Tragic story. 
Here was one of the things that stood out to me the most. The upper class. Well, we're going to get on the lifeboats, of course, not those other people. What? You mean the women and children of your non-class don't matter? The awesome thing about the gospel is God turns that stuff upside down. He really does. And we need to be thinking in those terms. God has chosen to save the world through the cross, through the shameful and powerful death of the crucified Messiah. If that shocking event is the revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God, then our whole way of seeing the world is turned upside down. Get this line. This is one of our commentators named Hayes. He said this, everything has to be evaluated, re-evaluated in the light of the cross. Not in the light of your heritage, not in the light that you have all of this history or all of this whatever it is. Anybody hear of Pratt Institute? Anybody ever heard of Pratt Institute, right? Anybody hear of Standard Oil? My relatives founded that. I'm poor. I just want to point it out. You get the point, it doesn't matter anyway. We reevaluate everything in the light of the cross of Christ. What Celsus saw as the shame of Christianity, all those comments that was made earlier, Paul saw as its greater glory. By bringing good news to the poor through his son, God has forever aligned himself with the disenfranchised. At the same time, he has played out before our eyes his own overthrow of the world's false standards. Every middle class or upper class domestication of the gospel is therefore a betrayal of the gospel. Whoa, I better read that one again because I think it slipped past. Every middle class or upper class domestication of the gospel is therefore a betrayal of that gospel. Do you remember that fabulous, yes, sir? We bring it to control. I'll I'll give you an example. In fact, funny you should ask. How many of you have ever seen Chariots of Fire? You all need to see Chariots of Fire. And you need to think about how far we've come from the days when a man who was an Olympic winner, runner, would not let the, let me see, who was it? The Duke of? Duke, no, it wasn't the Duke. That's a good song. Duke, 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 Duke. See what you just did to me? Oi. No, it was one of the nobility that confronted him and said, you need to run this race. It's on the Sabbath. I won't do it. Stood against powers. And they said, isn't it arrogance on your part to put your religious convictions above you know, the the honor of our country, there's an example. You're domesticating the gospel. And he rightly said, isn't it arrogance for you to try to dictate my conscience? That's not an exact quote, but you ought to watch the movie. Fantastic story. That's the domestication of the gospel rather than letting Aslan be the wild lion that he is. He's, he's not safe, but he's good. True? 
So in other words, here's another, another uh, comment, probably the last one I'll, I'll mention. God is in the business of overturning expectations. If he justifies the ungodly, one would expect that the church will be a mixed lot. And we are. Overturning expectations. God is creating his new community out of unimpressive material, precisely to exemplify the power of his own unmerited grace. And so, he picks who he wills. The truly unique feature of early Christianity was its non-homogenous character, that it cut across all sociological lines and accepted as brothers, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female. That was radical. And today we go, claim back history, brothers and sisters. Don't take that baloney from people. You know what this means? Downton Abbey, the butler, becomes the pastor of the boss in the house. You follow what I'm saying? Because of the gospel, the butler may become the spiritual leader over the whole household. Not the owner, the spiritual leader. Because God doesn't go by your caste system. That is a result of a fallen world. He doesn't. And so he uses people who are scandalous, perhaps, in their background, or just plain and feeble. When we've had prayer meetings, I've mentioned the story of Blind Peggy uh, in uh, the New Hebrides revival. These Gaelic-speaking sisters, Peggy was blind and her sister was bent over with arthritis, but they prayed power down into the church, and revival occurred. He uses the foolish things of the world. We we think we've got to figure out, oh, he'd make a great Christian. This guy would be a good leader. Boy, are we wrong so many times, so many times, especially in the uh, current media idolatry. Oh, that person, if only they became a Christian. We'd put him up in front of everybody and ruin his life in about two years. That's what we would do. Anybody not follow me? Ask me later what I mean. Upending human bias. Sing with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Isn't it amazing? Everybody in the room knows those words. Even non-Christians know the first stanza. Right? Who wrote it? Nope. Nope, not, not, oh, you smart girl. What's his name? Nope, that's, it is well with my soul. Are we having fun here? Look at it. Guess, guess, guess. No, you can open the Bible. Oh, she's cheating right there. She's opening the hymn book. John Newton. Slave. Slave captain. Slave ship captain. Are you listening? A slave ship captain. You saw the movie. It wasn't a very good movie, to be honest, but it's a great story. 
Newton started his career at sea as a young age, worked on a slave ship in the slave trade, became a captain of a slave ship. After experience a period of Christian conversion, Newton eventually renounced his trade, became a prominent supporter of abolitionism, living to see Britain's abolition of the African slave trade in 1807. Praise God. Can't you imagine the people on the committee to end slave trade saying, not him? Are you kidding? Yeah, can you imagine? But he became a champion for the gospel, and he wrote words that you know by heart. God is in the business of turning upside down our human biases, right? Think about it. The abortion industry, one of the chief opponents was a past abortionist, Dr. Bernard Nathanson who put together the film, The Silent Scream. I can't even talk about it without losing it. Search it out yourself. It still exists. Nobody wants to know nothing today. Paul the Apostle murdered the saints. You saw exactly what happened. God was in the business of turning our biases upside down. Barnabas was tuned into the Holy Spirit. He takes Paul by the arm. He says, come on in here, meet the saints. And they're like, ah! Not him! Don't you think it was a good idea that they accepted him eventually? Since he wrote most of your New Testament? It's like, wow. I think God knew what he was doing, right? He doesn't really need our committee to help him out. Which we think he does. And talking, let me, can I just say one more thing on that? May I? That wasn't a resounding yes. So anyway, so that means do it. And uh, this last week, anybody know who the Rohingya are? Have you? It's a, it's a Muslim people group who are running for their lives from Myanmar because they are being annihilated and abused. And they're going across the, the line into um, Bangladesh. And the Pope just stopped and visited with them. And said, and I'm sure every evangelical will be chomping on this, the presence of God is here among the Rohingya. They're Muslims. Doesn't something trigger in you? Oh, those are the bad guys. No, I hope not. But our flesh can. Our flesh can, well, you know, this person got beat up because he's part of this, uh, you know, gay demonstration, he, he kind of deserved it. No, but we do. We do, though. And when he said that, I, I, I was take, I had to, let me think about that. Isn't he exactly saying, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. That's what he's saying. This guy has probably manifested more grace than a lot of evangelicalism has. My little commentary. Um... You can start a petition to get rid of me if you want to say. Matthew 21, 28 through 31, please. If you would stand up and read that loudly, I'd appreciate it. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. 
Which is, oh, read the next line. There's another line. Amen. Oh, we don't like that. That's scandalous. Tax gatherers? Both then and now? Uh, Any IRS workers, my humble apologies. But not so humble. But anyway, they're the bad guys. Prostitutes. Everyone knows they're icky. I literally, I literally heard a preacher talk that way one day. I, there was something, and I was a new Christian, and there was something in my spirit. I had to wrestle. Because the way he described encountering this poor woman whose life was in shambles was disgusting. There was something in my spirit that was just agitated. I respected the preacher, and so I'm trying to think, there must be something right about what he's saying, but my spirit was struggling with it because it sure sounds like Phariseeism to me. I think about how many people must have looked at me at points and said, I know in seminary they went, Hey, John Hocko, how's Mr. Sandpaper today? Is he talking to me? That's all a true story. Do you get what I'm saying? When Jesus uses the illustration, a Samaritan comes along and helps the guy who's been beaten up. It's scandalous. They're the bad guys. He's the Muslim of that day. He's the bad guy. And Jesus is saying, he's acting more the way your father in heaven wants you to act than you are. That's what he's saying. It's a scandal. He's upending our biases. And he's also upending our self-salvation. We want to save ourselves. We think we know better how this ought to work, but that's not what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. The word of the cross is to those who are going to perish forever foolishness. Well, that's too simple. I have to receive Jesus. I got to trust him. I got to cast off all my self-importance and my righteousness, my history, and my grandfather was a preacher, and my uncle was a preacher, and I got all those blessings on me. That's what it's worth. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. So if you're sitting here, and by, by the, in the name of the Lord, I'm telling you, I know this happens even in churches. People sit and go, yeah, he's wrong. Yeah, he's wrong. And, and you know, sometimes preachers can be wrong. I was wrong at least once in my life that I can remember. But I knew it. <laughs> I, I, I remember times coaching a young man or a young woman to do this, and the parents came along and said, now nah, he's full of it. You don't, you don't have to do that. I wonder how they've all ended up now. I don't want to know, because it's usually ugly. It's foolishness. We do think that way sometimes, even as Christians. But I still know better. I know, you know, I remember, I remember dealing with, oh, never mind. Business is business, and Christianity is Christianity. You better get them together, pal. Amen. Figure it out. Figure it out. Because the non-believer who's watching you doesn't care that you compartmentalize everything. All they see is you're a hypocrite. Amen. The word of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God for transformation. But by his doing, you are in Christ, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He gives it to you. He is it for you, not you. He is it for you. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There are two errors. That's why I wrote errors on here. You know what? I sometimes wonder if I'm trying to persuade people in churches who are not the called. This is why it's so hard to get them to obey. If I'm called... There's an inner longing within me to please my Father in heaven. If that's not happening, maybe you're not in the called. Here's the two errors. One, I'm okay. No, you're not. Can everybody agree with me on that? I'm not. I'm not okay. I'm still in process. I'm still. The last four years at Harmony, God's still doing... And everyone out there said, oh, thank God, he's finally, he's finally getting it. I'm okay, but he really needs some work. Oh, <clears throat> anyway, you're never okay. When will we see that we're stuck? We don't see our racism as bondage. We don't see our biases as bondage, our idolatry of our careers, money, our children, our idols, our hobbies. And we think we're okay. As if God has nothing to work with in your life. Nothing that he wants to meddle with. That's the first error. Because he's busy upending our biases. And the second thing is, you may be sitting here thinking, I'm never okay. I'll never be. I'm the exception. I'm the loser. I'm the one that's a mess. I came to a conclusion the other day about unhappy people. Sometimes the reason they're unhappy with everyone else is because they hate themselves. How do I know that? I get it. I'm just no good. I'm too far gone. Too many mistakes. Too much hidden dirt in my past. Too weak. Too stupid. Whatever you think it is, it's a lie. He has taken the foolish, the feeble, whoever it is, or the brilliant. It doesn't matter if they come the same way at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way you enter into his kingdom is you receive his righteousness, his blessing, what he has done on your behalf. You can't possibly earn it. Stop trying. Get it and then start living it. That's where the fun is. I have a verse that I need read from that fine young man back there from Jeremiah chapter 9, and it's a quote from what Paul was referring to. So if you would, Dylan, please read that out loud. Everybody hear that? I delight in these things, righteousness and goodness. Good job. Thank you. And thanks for listening so carefully. Let him boast in what? I know and understand how this works. My way is wrong. His way is right. That's what I need to understand, and I will draw near to those who draw near to me. Let's stand together as we close today.
Several weeks back, almost all of us stood up saying, I want to change. Let me be blunt. Some of us were fibbing. Because everybody else stood up. Who wants to stay seated and be unspiritual? But I do believe numbers of us really do want that. Then you need to be willing to risk God upending your expectations. Turning things over. Starting to value people that maybe you're not valuing. Being gracious and kind to people who come and go here. and We ignore them or we think they're the wrong category. How do you know? That might be your future pastor in a few years. God might turn it right upside down. Father, we come in the name of Jesus and we today choose to boast in knowing you and receiving your righteousness and your power in our lives, not because we're so clever and we're so advanced. As many years as I've been walking with you, God, I'm still finding tripping spots and still finding you squeezing me to change and to be more like you because my expectations are often wrong. Help us to be learners rather than people who've arrived, because that's when we're deceived. Help us, we pray. Put your angels around your people. Bless us as we meet doing your business. Lord, we want the kingdom to advance here. We don't want to just be a club. We want to see the kingdom move forward in lives, whether they're exalted people or ignored people. Do your thing, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great day. If you're a member, you ought to stay. If you're not a member, you can stay and listen, but you can't vote. So, five minutes from now, we will start.